Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. When Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales... Good morning. Um, will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, you are good, gracious, and kind to us. Your kingdom come, your will be done, in our lives as it is in heaven. We are sinners in need of your mercy, your grace, your love. And we ask that you help us be merciful, gracious, loving, and kind to those you have placed in our lives in return. Thank you for this church, these people who desire to draw close to you and serve you. We ask for your deliverance from the evil that surrounds us. We also ask that you empower Nick this morning to clearly teach the truth of the scriptures and that your spirit would be among us, moving within us to receive your word in a way that changes us to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Can Is everyone awake now? We good. You guys can be seated. It was what I was going to say. Uh, I hope your morning has been well. I echo Kristen's heart and uh, her call to worship this morning, that it just seems like uh, God's presence is uniquely amongst us, amongst his people. Um, and, and what that does is like it awakens us to the reality of God, but sometimes, and I have been the person in this room 
before where it's like something's happening and you like aren't the person who's feeling it and that's okay too. And so I just wanna name that, that like if it's like the, the unique presence of God is beautiful and it's here, like yes, that is 100% true and sometimes we don't feel that and so that's okay. Like we can believe it's true while still not like feeling the tension or the presence of God. So I just wanna name that reality. Um, and then I wanna pray before we get started into this text today. If you would join me as we pray. Jesus, we come to you. You are the head of your church. This is your scripture. You have called these people. You know the people in room. Uh, you know their heart even. And so we just ask that as we come to this text today that by the power of your spirit you would speak to transform hearts. I can talk, God, but you, you are the one who transforms hearts. And so as we encounter your word together as a community, may we be transformed by it. And may that look like yes in robust, big ways, and may that look like really small shifts over the course of a lifetime as we desire to become more and more and more like you, King Jesus. Would you have your way in us today, God? We love you. We thank you for your love. We receive it again, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we jump into today's text, this is the, Saul's conversion is the, the probably most famous conversion story in all of human history. This is a text we know well if you've been raised in the church. If you don't kind of know where the story goes, Saul in the past has been persecuting people of the way, people who what we would now call Christians or followers of Jesus. Saul's been persecuting them and then Saul in this text encounters Jesus and becomes who we more commonly know as like the Apostle Paul who wrote a third of the books in the New Testament. So like quite the transformation from the man who is persecuting Christians to the man who like contributed through the power of the Spirit in moving Christianity forward uh, in, in what he did with his life but also what he gave us in his letters. But today, ultimately, Acts 9 is a text about conversion. And I wanna spend just a moment telling you a bit about my conversion. I was raised in a wonderful home. I had amazing parents. And I was raised in a Catholic tradition and, and I was raised in a way that um, faith was an important element of our life. And I remember as I aged and as I grew up, I continued to participate in Catholic church, but, and also uh, any like first communion people in the room, like Lutheran Catholic folk, yes. So did the first communion thing and did the confirmation thing in high school. And I remember being in high school and, and just kind of began to uh, slip into some casual, normal social sins of the high school scene. Some, like, some partying and hanging and, and doing things with friends that I probably weren't the best or led to flourishing, surely sin before God. But the reality is what I had inherited as a faith tradition um, was not one that like bound me in love to the person of Jesus. What I had inherited as a faith tradition was something that like we regularly practice and participated in. So it felt almost a bit more like works often than it did like encountering a real relationship with the person of Jesus. And one night I uh, played baseball. It was like 
my jam. It was my identity, if I were to look back. Like that's what I did when I was a kid. I was a baseball player. Um, and looking back, I remember uh, a friend of mine who we played baseball together. One day, he invited me to go to church with him. And the reason he invited me to go to church with him is because the youth group that he was a part of was doing this like battle of the sexes competition and you got points if you brought friends. So it was like a poor reason for evangelism <laughs> for her to invite your friends to church. But I came, I looked up to this guy, I came and I remember that night sitting in the like youth room in the middle of a song God of wonders beyond our galaxy, you are holy, holy. That God spoke to my heart. God reached into my life and, and, and I remember the words clearly. It was, you're not living the way you were created to live. And that was the, the first moment of my conversion story, of when I became a follower of Jesus, of where my life became Christ's life. And many ups and downs like anyone else in the room along the way, sure, but that was what we see in, in, with, with Saul in Acts 9, that was my story. And we've seen a lot in, in the book of Acts um, we've seen a lot of things happening. We've seen the Holy Spirit descend at Pentecost. We've seen the like formation of a new community of the Spirit marked by love and generosity. We've seen other conversion stories. We've seen Stephen been martyred for his faith. But what I want to remember this morning is that the Christian story, the Christian church, that followers of Jesus are not primarily people marked by a certain set of doctrines, although that's important, or a certain set of morality or ethics, that's important too. But the church, you and I, our primary fundamental story is a story of conversion to the way of Jesus. We are a group of people who have all been one to the point of transformation of our lives. And often this effect begins in our heart. It begins in the inward parts. It begins in the soul, like the deep down parts of who we are. And then over the course of time, we are, we are converted and then we are converted. Like we experience conversion and then we continue to be transformed and changed. Sanctified is the biblical word for that or what the Apostle Paul describes as like working out your salvation. But what I am glad for is that this is not the only conversion story in the account of Acts. It's not Luke's only writing. Um, I want you to think just of last week when Jordan taught the conversion of the African finance minister through Philip listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and sharing about the book of Isaiah and a normal, humble response by this African eunuch. Or I want you to think about Acts 16 where Lydia becomes converted through like quite literally what it seems like a simple Bible study with friends. Sometimes in Christianity we tend to grab our favorite story or collections of stories and dictate that this is the way things must always be. And the problem with that is when we, when we look at Saul's account here, he has this like radical conversion moment where he's encountered with the physical embodiment of Jesus. And many of you, your conversion moments look nothing like that. 
They look like a lifetime of subtle moments dripped across your life. If you were raised in the church particularly, if you were raised in a family that valued Christ above all else, it may be hard for you to find a specific moment and go like, that's where Saul's story happened to me. Most of you don't share that. Most of you have this like regular drip of invitation from God to be transformed, to be converted to him in his ways. And so while you might be able to define a hinge moment in your life, you also may not be able to. And that's okay. There's a friend that I work with who even, and she's amazing, but she has this tension of struggle within her of like, I don't know when I was converted. And because I don't know when I was converted, I don't know if I am converted. And that's a very different sort of question. But what we see, again, that's why we point out the, the Ethiopian eunuch, it's why we point out Acts 16 is like, God seems to work with people in a number, in a different variety of ways. And so however God has led you to the point where you are now, just like resolve in your heart that ha that has been God's work as much as it has like the big moments of the people around you or the big conversion or transformation moments. But we must remember as we come to this text that our faith is a faith, like it's a faith of conversion where you were once like far off from God and because of conversion, God has brought you near. Or as James K.A. Smith says, it's a conversion of your loves, like your, your greatest affection becomes Christ. The thing you long for most becomes Christ. And that is like that fundamentally is what conversion is. It's moving from one thing to another, being transformed or being changed. And this text should make us wonder about your and my conversion story. It should make us go back. It's like Revelation 2 when like remember your first love. Go back to the story where God transformed you, whether that was a moment or a series of moments. And map out that timeline, not because it's, um, not because you have to, but because it's important to remember God's faithfulness to us through the course of our lives. It's important to mark those moments, and as Deuteronomy would say, like pass those moments down to your children. To like build an altar of stones and say like, these are all the times God has been faithful in my life. And pass that on as an inheritance. Because what's interesting about conversion or Saul's conversion is that like it's, it, it's this thing that compels all of who we are. And living however you wanted to a person who has built their life around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing the things Jesus did as John Mark Comer so elegantly puts it. And so my question, like what, what compelled you to follow Jesus? Was it the community around you? Was it your parents? Was it the love and grace of God? Was it an invitation to something more? We spent a ton of time praying this morning in our pre-gathering prayer of just like, there are no bounds of God's love and there is more for you to access and that's true for every person in this room regardless of where you are today. There is more of God and his love for you. But just for a second, let's look at, at Paul's, or at Saul's conversion. Sorry, I might slip into Paul. Let's look at Saul's conversion. Saul, um, again, is on the famous road to Damascus and a light appears. And a voice appears and asks him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
And Saul's question here catches me off guard just a bit, mostly because I know that like Saul is really, really well educated. And so when Saul asks like, who are you? Like for us as modern day readers, like of course it's God, like it's God, we know, it's God. We, like, we, but we also like read the story, he lived the story. So at the time he doesn't know who he is, so he asks, who are you Lord? And this, this question is important because Saul is, is caught in this tension. You see, Saul knows the Old Testament like the back of his hand. He knows the law and the prophets. He knows all about Jewish history and tradition. He knows these things and excels in them. But what we experience in this story is that like Paul's or Saul's conversion is not a mental exercise or a theological question. This is a real lived physical experience for Saul. This is God coming down to earth and Saul who doesn't like think about that just for a second. Saul doesn't have a clean category in Jewish tradition or in Jewish literature to understand how God would come to earth apart from the temple. So in, Paul, like in Saul's mind, like if God's gonna descend, he only descends to one place and that's the temple. And so Saul, like this is disorienting. This is grading against who Saul thinks God really is. What he, like Saul can't seem to reconcile that this is God coming in the flesh even though he beckons Lord. And what's interesting about this is like Saul can't seem to reconcile something that's very similar to what many of us before we began to follow Jesus or many of our friends and family experienced. They can't reconcile who they think God is and who God actually is. You see, Saul is hung up because of the Old Testament text. You could quote Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the great Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Saul's thrown off by this because Jesus comes on the scene and talks about being God and that feels like it grates against the Shema. Saul doesn't understand the doctrine of the Trinity and that's okay. That's okay, but by rational thought, Saul can't get to the place or the idea where Jesus could be God because of his reading of the Old Testament. And Jesus, like that's why Jesus disrupts so much on the scene because he's making these sort of claims. And it's really not all that different than like our friends, family, maybe even you in this room today. It, it, like our, our issue is not the doctrine of the Trinity. But our issue may be like, if God really exists, why is there so much evil in the world? Why does my life feel so much like pain and suffering and loss and hurt if God's good and he's present to me? Why doesn't God make all the pain and suffering and conflict just go away? That may be more sort of your question or maybe it's less the problem of evil and more about the idea of love that if God was really good and if God was really love, then God would actively affirm every single person and thought and belief that any individual person carried that God would see no thing as sin or evil but fully embrace everyone's reality over the one he actually created. And these are real and hard questions. And while I think the Christian worldview has suitable answers, like I do, I think the Christian worldview has really great answers for all of these sorts of questions. What is more important than the really great answers is, like, is that really great answers will not convert a person, 
Really great answers will not win them into the way of Jesus. So we're left with the question, like if great answers to the great questions of life won't win them to the way of Christ, then what, what will? And the truth is that part of what happens in Saul's story is the same thing that happens with us. We have our misunderstandings about who we think God is or who we think he ought to be. And we hold on to these things, but the reality is when you are confronted with God like Saul is, those questions, although maybe good questions, immediately go to the back burner of our hearts and souls and lives. Here, Saul is confronted not by the God he thinks he understands, but he's confronted by Jesus. Good pains. We create a God that can address those things. And then out of the other question, like what, are, what really matters in the world? Or whatever deep, carries we, deep questions we carry about life, we create a God that can address those things. But what we are then left with, with that God, that thing that we create, is we never like, we never get to a place, that God that we create could never get to a place that draws us to transformation or conversion to anything else than what we already are. That God leaves us just as we are and never beckons us to more or beckons us to change or beckons us to transformation. The God I create would never convert me to anything, only to more of myself. Does that make any sense whatsoever? A few nods, thank you for the nods. But what happens at Saul's conversion and what happens at our conversion is that these questions are not necessarily answered and they should be. They should come back up later in life and we should explore them and flesh them out with God. But, but Saul here does not immediately gain an understanding of the Trinity at conversion. He doesn't understand all of these pieces but what happens is we are exposed to and truly encounter Jesus. We encounter God for who he really is. And by encountering God, our very human and very real questions begin to take the back burner. They just don't seem to matter as much in the light of who God is. And as we encounter God who created the heavens and earth and who resurrected from the dead, who died on my behalf so I could have life with him, our questions and even our stories just don't seem to matter as much as we thought they did. When you first encountered or experienced God, I doubt you brought to him all your like well-reasoned theological questions that you had issue with and said, I'll follow you if you answer these but more likely you encountered the living God in your own life right where you are. And because of that, you were beckoned, like your affections were caught up with love for the person of Jesus. And that doesn't mean those questions go away, they should be thought about, they should be answered. But the thing that like, God beckons us to first is relationship with him, like with the real living God. whether you were captured by his love or his grace, something in you at some point was captivated by who God really is, whether that's a moment or a series of moments. And one of the realities that we must recapture as the Christian church in this time, like we're in 2022, it's just that we, we can't go back, we can't go forward, this is where we are in the moment of history. 
And it's really important to understand that like our Christian worldview rubs up against a post-truth culture. That's what our culture around us, what's what the norm is around us, that truth no longer exists. Where truth is no more about what is real about life and morality and faith. There is no more sure footing of truth, but it's all become subjective to how each individual feels on the inside. And it's important that as we like carry the banner of Jesus forward, that we hold on to the reality that that the scriptures are held as truth because Jesus affirms them as truth. And we hold to like what, what Saul experiences here, like the resurrected Jesus, that we hold to that as true. If you have left the idea that Jesus bodily resurrected, you have quite literally left Christianity. And so it's important that we like receive and resolve in our heart that these things are not true for me, they are true for the entire world. And what you are left with is not a decision of whether this is true or not, but what will I do in response to this truth? And we could go into all sorts of like apologetical reasons why Jesus has resurrected from the, the dead and I'd be glad to do that with you. But I think more importantly today we must we must become captivated by the reality of who Jesus is today. Like we did when we first were converted. And Kristen said it so well, like this morning in our pre-gathering prayer time, we're just crying out for more hunger. Stop persecuting me. If you'd turn, if you have it with you in verse five, I just wanna read this again. Saul asks, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. And I just wanna park there for just a second because I think this is really important theologically but I also think it's really important at this moment for our community as many of us are going through hurt and struggle and pain and suffering and loss. And sometimes God gets a lot of shade cast on him for what hurt people, like for the hurt that people experience in this world, for the problem of evil. But Jesus says something here that Paul goes on to really understand over time. You see, when Jesus says these words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, Saul wasn't persecuting like Jesus directly. Saul was persecuting, participating strictly in the scriptures, participating in persecuting Stephen. And this mention from Jesus goes on to be like a really important theme or key concept for Saul or Paul in the rest of his ministry. And that's that Jesus has this like unique, united relationship with his people. To the point that when they are persecuted, Jesus says, you are persecuting me to the point when they are hurt, whether that be physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever it is, God seems to share in that pain and in that hurt with people who are a part of his family and call him Lord. And this, like this is amazing. It's amazing. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, it says, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Paul's words. Galatians 2 verse 20, I no longer live but Christ lives in me, Paul's words. Ephesians 2 6, God raised us up with Christ. This is not future tense language. God raised us up with Christ and seated us, present day, 
with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. There is a beautiful union between Christ and his people. It's an important piece of Paul as he teaches through the scriptures, or as he writes out the scriptures, I apologize. That Christ unifies himself with us now. Not just when heaven is not just when earth is reconciled and renewed, not just when all things are made right, although what a glorious day that will be, but Christ unifies himself with us now, and this is a great mystery that we don't understand, but this is a really good mystery. This is a really beautiful truth, that Christ's presence is in you now that when you rejoiced, Christ's presence is in you. When you weep, Christ's presence is in you. When you suffer for a long time and it doesn't seem like it will stop, Christ's presence is in you. When you endure hardship, Christ's presence is in you. When you choose love, when it's hard, Christ's presence is in you. Are you getting it? Like this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to walk with God through life, like Christ's presence, and not, not that we have to fully understand the mystery, that's very Western of us, to try to like name really clearly all the mysteries of God. We wanna allow ourselves the freedom to go like, this is what the scriptures say is true, and so we believe it to be true, and we will live into the mystery even though we don't fully understand it. That wherever you are today, whatever you have been experiencing, whether it's like conversion or rebirth or new birth or salvation or whatever word you want to use to describe this moment, whatever word you wanna to use to describe the sanctification that God's inviting you to, that this isn't like work to be done on your own, this is Christ in you doing new things. This is the power of Christ that lives in each and every one of us. Toward the end of this story, we begin to see, if you'd look at verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest us all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What's beautiful about the back half of the story, and if you look and like zoom in on Ananias' life, is you see this like continued cycle all throughout the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit, where God is prompting people to participate in life in the kingdom. That's, that's like, that is normal. That is like post the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, that is normal. The Holy Spirit prompts people to participate in life in the kingdom, both inside the church and outside the church for God's plan, God's glory, and God's purposes. And one of the things, like Ananias is confronted with a real decision. We read over it really quickly, but he's like, this guy kills people, like, and he has the authority to do so. 
And we were just like, oh yeah, but we know the end of the story, so let's just move on. Like, no, he has real authority to kill people, to kill Ananias. And the Holy Spirit says, like, go, go to this man. And Ananias, um, if his life has been anything like mine or my friends, like usually the Holy Spirit doesn't start with like a really big gigantic ask like this. Usually like through God's grace and God's kindness, he like works us into through small steps of faithful obedience to bigger and bigger things. It's almost like a, if you'd be faithful with little, I'll give you much sort of thing. Does that make sense? And so I, I doubt that this is the first time that the God ever like spoke through the power of the Spirit to Ananias and he had to respond with this like pivotal moment of do I go and die as far as he can tell or do I not? Like can you imagine? I wonder and question all the time like do I hear the Holy Spirit quickly, <laughs> clearly? Could you imagine being Ananias for a second? Like thinking do I hear the, like this can't possibly be the Holy Spirit, right? But I think through God's kindness and graciousness and faithfulness to Ananias and Ananias is like, like a muscle that gets worked out, this repetition of continually showing up to God and exercising faithful obedience from prompting of the Holy Spirit. I think that's one of the things that God just seems like through this study in Acts is wanting to do in our community, like exercise the muscle of responding to the prompts of the Holy Spirit. We read that last week with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Like Philip went, why? Because the Holy Spirit told him to. He had no other reason. Ananias goes here, why? Does he care about the life of Saul? No, not particularly. But what he does care about is responding to the prompts of the Holy Spirit. And so while we both like receive the truth that Christ lives in you, he does. Christ lives in you, he makes his home in you. We also receive the challenge from Ananias to like faithfully respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our life. And I say often, this, sometimes when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think about things like this, like these big event type moments. And I would suggest that the Holy Spirit, like usually we don't think we hear the Holy Spirit, not because it's too supernatural, but because it's too natural. It's like the normal ask of obedience day in and day out. And we go like, that can't be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does like radical stuff. The Holy Spirit also does very normal things that draw you into the life of Christ. And I think that's one of the invitations for our community in this season is that we would become a community that responds to the prompt of the Holy Spirit in our life. And that's not a really big thing, that's a really small thing. And so I just wanna leave you with this. Um, I believe that the power of the Spirit is like moving and active. He's alive and he's doing things in the life of believers, in the life of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. And so maybe it's like, man, I just don't know how to hear his voice. Or maybe it's I don't know like specifically what he's asking of me. Or like I, that stuff really scares me so I don't wanna touch it with a 10 foot pole. Like it could be any of those things. But I just again wanna remind you like Christ lives in you and that's for a purpose. 
That is that you would live faithfully by the power of the Holy Spirit into where God has sent you, which is right where you are. And so as we close our teaching time and continue to worship Jesus, I just want you to like become aware that you are filled with the Holy Spirit for purpose and for reason. And that God's desire is to partner with you in all things that God wants to do. So would you, um, would you stand with me and I will pray and then we'll continue to worship. Would you stand? That you would pour your spirit out in this place and in the hearts, the lives, the like very bodies of these people in the room. That they would encounter your love again, whether that's like being reminded through the story to remember back to our conversion where like nothing else mattered except our love and affection for you, King Jesus. Or whether it's continued transformation over a lifetime of following you in like small obedient steps to the prompts of the Holy Spirit. God, would you um, create in this place by the power of your spirit like a desire, an adoration, a worship of you, God. Would you do that in us and through us? In our participation in church this morning, God, may we not like move past you. May we lean into your presence, into the reality that you are here, that you fill us, and that you desire you like you have more for us, God. And God, I even just wanna pray against, um, just feels like there's people in the room who are like, I've tried that before and it hasn't gone well. I pray that they would like not just have that conversation with them, like with themselves, but have that with you. That God, it's your love, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, that leads us to following. And so may, may our affections, may our love be poured out on who you are as we encounter who you really are this morning, God. We thank you for your love, Jesus, and we love you. We pray these things in your name.